You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, we ask for your help now in coming to this seemingly obscure passage. I love seemingly obscure passages in your word. Because that means there is something I need to learn. There's something we need to learn. There's more of you to see and know and enjoy. And so, Father, would you do that for us here this morning? Would you speak to us through this ancient text, not our covenant, but our scripture? And would you give us your grace as a church in these days? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last month, our family was up north with our in-laws, and we were traveling around Grandpa Tom's hunting land, and we're setting up the trail cams so that we can see what deer are on the land so that we can treat them nicely for several months and then shoot them when deer opening happens in early November. And as we're driving down the trail, we see an animal up ahead on the path, and it we always assume deer first, but then after a while, it's like, no, that's not, that's not a deer. And somebody says, that's a coyote. That's a coyote. And so we're starting to be a little, little worried here. We keep going, see, we see what's going to be next. And somebody says, no, that's a wolf. That's a wolf on the trail up ahead. And so now we're definitely proceeding more carefully. As we get closer, we realize it's a sheep. <laughs> It's like the opposite of a wolf. But it's more surprising in the woods that we're coming across this domestic animal. Like it would be more expected that it would be a wolf in the woods. It's a sheep. And we see that the sheep is hobbling. Something's wrong with the leg. And we cannot leave the sheep in the woods. There are predators out here. We know the right thing to do is to get this sheep back where it belongs. It's not a wild sheep. So we think, all right, there's a nearby farmer, not too far away. I mean, he's a quarter mile from where we are. Nearby farmer, this sheep must have wandered off his property. And so my brother-in-law, who is larger and stronger and more courageous than I am, picked up the sheep. This is an adult sheep. Picks up the sheep, gets into the, the back, into the bed of the ranger, and we drive a quarter mile to the property and return the sheep. Very bizarre experience for a city boy or a city it is what I'm what I'm called. <clears throat> and then comes to my mind Exodus 30 23 verse 4 that we just read. Exodus 23 verse 4. If your enemy's ox or his donkey, and I extrapolated, or his sheep is going astray, you shall bring him back. Which is not to say that this nearby farmer is an enemy of my in-laws, by, by no stretch. But in bringing the sheep back and not leaving the sheep for the wolves, that was the right thing to do. And perhaps in ancient Israel, if you came across the animal of even your enemy, because of case law like this, 
you would get the point that the right thing to do, you'd be guided, you'd be inspired to do the right thing. And even for your enemy, bring back the animal that was straying. Now, these case laws in Exodus 21 to 23 are not typically so directly applicable to life in the city, especially in 2021. I have never come as a city boy. I have never come across a straying domestic animal in the woods in my life. I don't know if that'll ever happen again. If I had been by myself, I don't have the ability or probably the courage to just pick up a sheep and take him back to some farmland. These are foreign chapters to us in 2021 and perhaps all the more those of us who are urban. However, as we linger in these chapters, and this is important. Sometimes we just read through it once. I don't understand it, and I'm off to the New Testament. But if we linger through these chapters, meditate on these chapters, we can discern timeless principles and the character of our God coming through in them. Some of what we want to do this morning. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Joe tackled chapter 21. And he introduced us to this whole section of case laws in chapters 21 to 23 as part of the book of the covenant for Israel, beginning in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And Joe provided some important perspective on these chapters, some of which we'll review, which meant that last week's sermon, he said, had to be light on application. That's what we had to do last weekend as we got into these sections. This week... Let's try to complement that by at least framing our approach in terms of application. You may not get as many nitty-gritty details of application as you prefer, but at least let's frame our approach in terms of application. And so the question I want to ask this morning, in Exodus chapter 22 and chapter 23, verses 1 to 9, what do we need as a church from these case laws? So unashamedly, 2021, Cities Church, what do we need from this seemingly obscure passage of Scripture, these old covenant case laws, more than 3,000 years old? What does God have for us in these chapters this morning? Let me draw your attention to five provisions from our God for us as a church. Number one, We need to know how to use the Word of God. How to use the Word of God. Foreign as these laws and these scenarios seem to us, these are the words of our God. First, to His ancient people, fresh out of Egyptian slavery. And then, secondarily, to us. Rightly is the book of Exodus And the case law, it reports part of our Bibles. We cannot understand the New Testament like we should apart from the old. And while this is not our covenant in Exodus 21 to 23, this is our scripture. And as we saw last fall in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. These case laws for Israel were God-breathed. 
They were not given directly to the church of the first century or to us in the 21st century, but they were God-breathed to God's first covenant people more than 3,000 years ago. And Paul says that they are useful. This idea of we need to know how to use them, that's from Paul, useful. All scripture, old covenant case laws included, is profitable, beneficial, useful, he says, for us as Christians. These case laws as expressions of God's wisdom and of his justice, which is striking, and of his mercy and compassion, which are remarkable. This not only makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, but also makes us mature, complete, ready to do the very good things he's called us to do for each other and in our world. We can't fulfill our calling as Christians without the scripture. And the only way to use these chapters, these verses, these case laws well is to read them properly and understand them properly in this section of Scripture that is so strange to modern Bible readers. We're so far removed from the original context. Last week, Pastor Joe clarified that the law of Moses, as we encounter it here in Exodus 20 to 24, the law of Moses, and more broadly in the Pentateuch, is a specific published covenant between God and his people for a particular era of redemptive history. The laws within it contain various layers in various combinations. We can use them as wisdom in our own attempts to apply God's law. But as Christians, we are not directly under the Mosaic law as a covenant. We're under the new covenant. We're in Christ. All authority has been given to him as the head of our covenant. So Exodus 21 to 23 is our scripture, but Moses is not our lawgiver. As Christians, our lawgiver is Jesus. We also need to remember what kind of legal system and laws we're dealing with in Exodus 21 to 23. This is not a comprehensive legal system, which might be the unique creation of modern hubris, to think that we can create some comprehensive system that deals with all the exceptions. The, but rather, this is example case law. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Here we, we got three chapters of this. Of this. Instead, of, instead of thousands of pages of a tax code, this is, this is wise to have case law. There is a place for case law. This is not meant to be exhaustive and cover as many scenarios as it can. It provides examples, case studies that show the principles and show the priorities, and show the penalties of God's law in particular cases. The leaders of God's people were to know these examples well enough to be able to pl apply them with just judgments and appropriate penalties as they encountered the various complex situations of life that emerged for God's people. You might recall what Deuteronomy 17 says should be the first job of the king of Israel once the nation has a king. This is before an Israel has a king. Moses is saying ahead of time, hey, just let you know, this is what the king should do first 
when the king comes along. You know what that is? Take out his quill and copy by hand his own copy of Moses' law and meditate on it daily. Not, not the whole five books of the Pentateuch daily, but meditate on God's law daily to become the kind of person so saturated in God's way of thinking about what's sinful and to what degree and what the penalty should be for that, that the king can be wise and rule the nation with God's wisdom. And the judges in Israel will do the same thing. And for us as Christians today, we're to meditate on God's revealed word day and night to become the kind of people who see our world in the way God sees our world with the kind of priorities and depths of sin and kind of penalties that would come with that. So we need to know how to use God's word. Number two, we need to see God's provision for his people. Not only are these case laws useful for cultivating wisdom and informing our lives today, but we also should stand back in awe and say, look how God provides for his people. Put yourself in their setting, fresh out of Egyptian slavery. Your people have little culture of their own, no king. No formal laws, no legal system, no officially agreed upon religious practices. This is a people without formal order and codified culture. And God, through Moses, sends it down from the mountain as a gift. These chapters and case laws show us how God cares for his people with justice and mercy meeting in the particular details of their time and their place. Daily life looked very different 3,000 years ago. God's people are organized by tribes. There's no prisons. That affects this law. No prisons. No machines. No automobiles. No massive welfare state. But God meets his people in the wilderness and provides for them 10 commandments, the first part of Exodus 20. And he provides for them, at the request, a mediator in Moses to speak for him, second half of chapter 20, and for an altar, for sacrifices so their sins can be covered and they can come near and God can bless them, chapter 20, verse 24. And God provides rules in order to give them life in the covenant, chapters 21 to 23. And as we'll see next week, he will provide an angel for them to guard them on the way to bring them to the place he has prepared for them, chapter 23, verse 20. And as we'll see in Exodus chapters 26 to 31, he provides detailed instructions for constructing a tabernacle, a traveling temple in the wilderness, and for priests as stewards of the covenant. It is in this context of God's provision for his people in Exodus 20 to 31 that we see what's happening in chapters 21 to 23. These case laws are not given to make the lives of God's people harder. These are not hoops 
to jump through. These are not punishments. This is glorious revelation, guidance, precepts from God for his people in this particular season of history. Now, it's not Christian, (laughs) or you might say it's pre-Christian. This is well more than a thousand years before Jesus comes, but these case laws as particular example applications of the Ten Commandments for Israel's time and place are a gift for the good and the peace and the flourishing of God's people until the promised one comes. So more about chapters 21 to 23 then. Last week, we saw in the first half of chapter 21 on the laws about slavery and giving rest, we saw that those were application of commandments one and four. Right? So the Ten commandments here being refracted, applied in this case law. And then in the second half of chapter 21, it was on violence and honoring father and mother, we saw applications of commandments five and six. In this passage, first half of chapter 22 on property and theft applies the eighth commandment. Then chapter 22, verses 16 to 20, on marital and spiritual fidelity applies commandments 2 and 7. And chapter 22, verses 21 to chapter 23, verse 9, that last section, is on care for the poor and the marginalized, and it applies commandments 3 and 9. And next week, Pastor Kevin will lead us through the rest of chapter 23 on the Sabbath and festivals, which applies commandments 4 and 10. And if you're keeping tally, all 10 have been covered. All 10 are applied, expanded, often paired with the complementary commandment, and then refracted into the specifics of life in Israel 3,000 years ago. So yes, this book of the covenant, these case laws are for a very different time and place. We need to keep that in mind to understand them aright. But there is remarkable wisdom and a striking concern for justice and an arresting heart of mercy that comes through in these case laws. This is our God providing for his people. See him here. See his glory in his justice and mercy. See his well-timed, well-placed provision for the good of his people. He's the same God who provides for us today. Number three then. We need to know God's concern for restitution. All right, now we're getting into the text. This is chapter 22, verses 1 to 15. It's in the specific clusters of these laws. We need to know God's concern for restitution. There are two sections in this morning's text that we might call two aspects of God's concern for justice. The first is the application of the eighth commandment in these verses, chapter 22, verses 1 to 15, in the concern for restitution. Now, restitution means to make peace or to, we could say, to make rights, make wrongs into right. We right a wrong when we when we we do restitution. And what's in view in particular here in the beginning of chapter 22 is the loss of and harm 
to property. And we can say a lot about what the Book of the Covenant presupposes about the rightfulness of property possession. I'll leave that for another time. There are two main sections here in verses 1 to 15. The first, we might say, is about the unauthorized invasion of another's property. This is stealing or unintentionally hurting someone else's property. Verses 1 to 6, the unauthorized invasion of another's property. And then in verses 7 to 15, we might call this the abuse of the authorized use of another's property. If somebody gives you something for safekeeping and you misuse it while it's in your possession, that's what verses 7 to 15 are dealing with. And these examples are arranged in both sections from the most offensive to the least. And when we see the principles at work here, when we meditate on these commandments, these case laws, it seems like very common sense justice to me. And it probably is a shared judicial sentiment among most of us. However, not all of our judicial sentiments are perfectly dialed in. And so it's helpful to have it written, written down. Common sense as it is, it's helpful to have it written down. So if you harm another's property by accident, so it's your fault, we didn't mean to do it. You didn't steal anything, but it's your fault then basic restitution is to compensate for that property, to either replace it of like kind or to give the right sum of money for that piece of property that you harmed unintentionally. That is, you make the wrong right. However, if you're caught stealing, this is intentional. If you're caught stealing, then the norm is double restitution or what we might call the law of equivalence. The thief, when caught, should first return what he has stolen to the one he stole it from. But he also should provide, in addition, the same thing he tried to steal as a deterrent. It's too easy on the thief if he just gives back what he took. He needs to also give in the same measure, what he tried to take, double restitution. However, if he steals an animal or kills an animal that he cannot just return, then the text says to pay five times for an ox and four times for a sheep. Now, why would that be? In the ancient world, when someone broke into someone else's property to steal something, they weren't trying to find a boombox or a laptop. They probably weren't breaking into the sleeping quarters. To break into someone's property is to breach the fence and probably take animals, which are very valuable in a day without machines. And if you take someone's ox, and in the process, kill the ox or lose the ox. You can't just give the ox back. And that ox is trained to work for that owner. A new ox needs to be raised and trained. And in the meantime, valuable work is not able to be done by the rightful owner of that ox. And so God helps. He specifies. You take and kill an ox, take and lose an ox, five for an ox, four for a sheep. 
to provide the proper restitution to that owner, to make that wrong right for him. Similar to a carjacking today, when someone steals your car, they don't just take away a possession that you like to look at and go for joyride in. They take away your means of carrying on your work and your life. One clarification in this section before we move on. Verses 7 to 9 talk about both parties in a dispute coming near to God or coming before God. What does that, what does that mean? How, how would they come near to God, come before God in ancient Israel? Well, last week we saw in chapter 21, verse 22, that one who accidentally harms a pregnant woman shall, quote, pay as the judges determine. Through Jethro's good advice, as Joe mentioned, Moses searched for able, God-fearing, trustworthy men to serve as judges in Exodus chapter 18. Previously, Moses alone, as the prophet, handled these disputes. He was the one who came near to God, who approached God to get God's answer on these matters. But now, the people come near to God. They approach God in a dispute by bringing it to the appointed judges who know these case laws backwards and forwards so that they can render in the matter God's just verdict and punishment. But there's not only God's concern for retribution here, restitution. There is also, we need to know God's concern that justice not be perverted. Our God is concerned that justice not be perverted. This is chapter 23, verses 1 to 8 that Clint read. Restitution, making wrongs right, is one aspect of God's concern for justice. And now, chapter 23, verses 1 to 8, protects against perversions of justice, against making rights wrong. And there are two repeated warnings in the first half of chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. Both are surprisingly relevant in our day. The first is against spreading false reports might call it slander, or making false charges. And the second is against partiality. First, false reporting means circulating details that are not true, or conveying true details in such a way as to give a false impression. This includes speech in court and outside of court. So it includes perjury or gossip and slander. Little did we know 25 years ago with the advent of the internet, say, and 15 years ago with the advent of the smartphone and eventually social media, what false information and slander would be unleashed in public by sinners that made use of these new technologies? Walking down the street, flying a passenger jet, into a skyscraper. Once, our slander did its evil and disappeared into thin air with our breath. Now, it's preserved online to be reshared, retweeted, 
and be, be viewed by anyone at any time in any place. If somebody sends them the link. Brothers and sisters, may it not be with us at City's Church. Frankly, I am stunned how much and how quickly some who profess the name of Christ have been conformed to the pattern of this world and are following the course of this world in the sorts of slander and gossip they put online in 2021 which would have been unthinkable for them 10 years ago. We are being conformed to this world. More than that, it was just January of last year, January of 2020, when we preached on the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so in preparing for this message, I went back and looked at that message on the ninth commandment from a year and a half ago. And it sure seems to me that things are discernibly worse only a year and a half later. Which, I know there's been a pandemic, social unrest, but we probably should not discount the madness that this country goes through in an election year. And a year and a half ago, we got help from the Westminster Larger Catechism as it applies the Ninth Commandment to various expressions of lying. Question 144 speaks about the positive, the duties required by the Ninth Commandment, including, quote, a charitable esteem of our neighbors. Would God help us with that? A charitable esteem of our neighbors. How wonderful would that be? Desiring and rejoicing in the good name. That we don't only defend our, our name, we want to defend others' names unwillingness to receive an evil report, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Let's do it. And then question 145 expands on the sins forbidden by the ninth commandment. So now it's negative. Here's the negative side. This is what you don't do, Christian. All prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors Passing unjust sentence. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning in a doubtful or equivocal expression to prejudice the truth or justice. There's the concern for justice. How justice is perverted in such speech. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring. Making a big comeback. Misconstructing intentions, words, and actions. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities. Raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against a just defense. Evil suspicion, neglecting such things as are of good report. And that's almost 400 years old. <laughs> Amazing. Things don't change a lot in 400 years. So the first emphasis in not perverting justice is not spreading a false report, verse 1, or keeping far away from a false charge, verse 7. 
And the second emphasis in this section is against partiality or favoritism or an unjust bias or preference. Verses 2 and 3. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And on the other side, verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due your poor in his lawsuit. So our God forbids judges and witnesses in court from being biased against the poor or biased for the poor. Even 3,000 years ago, being weak or marginalized could provoke unfair treatment negatively or unfair treatment positively. In court, in a contest of justice, God's people are not to play favorites because of the class identity of the defendant as rich or poor or his occupation or ethnicity, his or her sex or other irrelevant details to the case. This is so eerily relevant. Just this weekend, Pastor Kevin passed along an article by former pastor in New York, Tim Keller. And he, in one section, was grieving how identity politics has come to ground claims for justice, not in an objective moral order, like Exodus 21 to 23, but in the group's own unique perceptions and experience. And in such times, we need the fresh breeze of Exodus 23 to blow away our folly. Judge the case with impartiality by the truly relevant details. Do not pervert justice either side of the aisle. Which is not unrelated to Paul's warning here against the pull of, he calls it the many. The mob, the crowd, the nice democratic ways to talk about the majority. Social pressure is powerful. God calls his people to be the kind of people who are wary of social pressure in general, but especially in judicial contexts. And in the midst of these two aspects of justice, righting wrongs and not making rights into wrongs, we also see that God calls his people beyond mere keeping laws and protecting justice, but to act in love, even toward enemies. If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back, which leads to the last provision for us to see in these case laws. Number five, We need to know God's heart of compassion. This is chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. We need to know God's heart of compassion. In the middle of these two sections, establishing and protecting justice, we have verses 21 to 27 in chapter 22, and it's calls for compassion. 
for going beyond strict justice to care for those in needs. Given that our God is a God of justice, as we've seen, how amazing it is to see his concern for the stranger, for the oppressed, for the widow and orphan, those without a father to provide for and protect them. Our God cares. He is not just the perfect judge, but also the perfect father. He inclines his heart to be a father to the sojourner who has no fatherland. And he is made furious, verse 24. He is made furious by the mistreatment of the vulnerable. There are cautions here that justice not become an excuse for being inhumane or unkind. For instance, God wants his people to give charitable loans in verse 25. Make it so that you share in the profit and gain of the one you loan to rather than profiting from their failures. This would be another reason to speak of the unrighteousness of gambling. God doesn't mean for his people to profit from the failures of others. He means for people to profit, to gain, as those they work with also gain. So, verse 26, if you take a poor man's cloak in pledge, you're holding it for him while you're, while you're doing something for him, return it to him for the night so he doesn't have to sleep cold, which we can really understand in Minnesota. This concern for compassion might create a tension with what we have just seen about justice. Let me put a fine point on it here as we close. Chapter 23, verse 3, was about the just treatment of the poor. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And the calls to compassion in chapter 22, verses 25 to 27 seems in tension with this. This is very important. There is a difference between partiality to the poor in court, which would wrong his opponent, and extending compassion to the poor in other contexts in ways that wrong neither him nor anyone else. In other words, there's a kind of fake compassion, a kind of thin compassion at best, a kind of misplaced compassion that compromises justice in the name of helping the weak and marginalized. And there is a true compassion manifested in acts of self-sacrificial love and mercy and generosity that does not compromise justice. True compassion, with apologies to Robin Hood, doesn't wrong one identity group to give to another one. True compassion doesn't force or manipulate others to bear the cost of my compassion. True compassion bears the cost itself. 
I help the poor because I'm willing and I'm glad and nobody's twisting my arm to do it. True compassion wrongs no one. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. True compassion, true mercy, true love bears the cost personally and does not wrong others in the name of compassion. Which leads us to the table and how our God has shown compassion to us. The end of verse 27 in chapter 22 is the sweetest, most glorious, most stunning glimpse of God in all these case laws. I am compassionate. In the midst of his remarkable concern for justice and examples of how to pursue justice and apply justice with wisdom, verse 27 shines through with the stunning heart of this God who does not compromise justice. God wrongs no one when he extends his saving compassion to us. He did not compromise cosmic justice to show us mercy. He put his own willing son forward to cover with his blood the justice we owed for our sin. And so Romans 3.26 says that the cross was to show God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his justice at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So we come to the table of one who is just and justifier, one who is righteous and compassionate. God is just. He does no wrong to anyone as he extends his mercy to his people. And he is justifier. At great cost to himself, he gives his own willing son as we celebrate here to receive our just penalty that we, though ungodly, might be declared righteous in Jesus. So the pastors will come and we will bring this around to you. This is a meal first and foremost for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us here this morning and you would say, I claim this God in his justice, in his compassion, and we invite you to eat with us. His body is the true bread. His cup is the true drink. Let us serve you.